Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Walter Poppy, your host of the Go to Market podcast, where we break down go to market strategies and tactics with founders, revenue operators, and investors to get actual insights to make your go to market plans faster and more predictable. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Uh, so, even better. Uh, so, uh, for everyone watching and listening, um, what we'll kind of give some context of who you are and, uh, uh, for background, my name is Elias Rubel. I'm the founding partner at Mattermade. Uh, Mattermade is a B2B growth marketing firm. We work with companies like Dropbox and Calm and a bunch of other venture backed high growth startups and scaling companies to help them scale revenue on the marketing side of the business. Um, so that's, that's what I'm up to now. Uh, my background, though, ranges, I, I started a venture-backed software company that was acquired in 2014. We did contract lifecycle management software, not a, not a space I expected my first company to be in, but, uh, you know, hey, I picked a category that was unsexy and, and went for it. Um, oh, I've also, you know, scaled an e-commerce business, sold that to private equity, and so I've got a bunch of really, my background's weird, man. It's all over the place. Uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. No, I mean... And, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I think so appreciated is, is having a, a very unique and weird background. Uh, you know, within that, I mean, how do you now apply your, 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 your past experiences to helping the companies now with their go-to-market strategies and their growth plans? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. I mean, that's, that's really everything, right? Is like pattern matching and, and kind of having those experiences to call on. I think that initially... Um, even before matter made, you know, I, I've always been big at just like having a lot of irons in the fire and testing different things and then waiting to get some form of signal, um, whether that's at a macro level with companies like multiple companies or, you know, a more micro level with campaigns and testing kind of quick iteration on that front. Um, that said, nowadays, what's really fantastic is, you know, we're, we're working with and helping scale anywhere from five to 10 high growth B2B startups a year. And so, you know, whereas your average revenue operator or marketing leader is going to be with the same company for, you know, call it three years, something like that, you know, they get really deep on that one specific problem space. But then when they move on, they're, they're learning all over again, our ability to see patterns in the industry and to test all sorts of, you know, what is the tip of the spear in B2B marketing and growth and, and test and learn from that then we get to deploy that for our new clients. So it's really cool to be able to take that pattern matching, learn quickly, and then see results from it. Well, so what are some of those pattern matching? I mean, what, what is it that you're seeing? Um, I mean, what, what would you say kind of high level are you kind of like recognizing right now as uh, some exciting things? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the one that's in front of everyone right now and everyone's trying to figure out how to react to is you know we've been in this we've been in this shift back towards authentic community building and social selling i mean those things never really went away but for a while there it was a little bit more mechanical a little bit more you know case studies and white papers and you know downloaded content yep. and gated content and now we're moving to this place of you know, authenticity, sharing freely, not getting content. I mean, it, it's that statement that we keep hearing this year and last year about, you know, buyers are already forming their decision before they get on a call with a salesperson or an SDR, or at least a lot of their buying, you know, process has been done up front. 
And then sure, there's, you know, there's a buying committee that has to be worked around and there's, there's a bunch of mechanics in order to close a deal. And so there's still a ton of hard work that sales reps and sales leaders have to navigate. But on the marketing side, a lot of the research is being done up front. And so um, creating programs that play into that, make it really easy for someone to self-educate. And then I think that the, the best organizations now are figuring out how to make their buyers and their buying committee thought leaders and champions. Um, and that, that kind of ties into social selling. So one of the things that we've been testing, just to give you a more specific example, because I know that's kind of like theoretical and, and stuff we've already heard. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 give us that 30,000 foot view, but you know, let's, let's look at those trees and you know. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go deep. Yeah. So there's this new thing that we're actually releasing this week called decision maker marketing. Um, and, and the whole premise here is that, um, traditional marketing takes a while, right? And this is generally where sales and marketing start to split and have their, their differences is when it takes too long to generate the demand that sales needs in order to do their job well. Um, and so decision-maker marketing is a shortcut to go from you know, what might be a three to six month marketing program um, to, to get to those results to um, you know, a seven to 14 day expedited process, which is nuts, right? And the way yeah. that it does that is by cutting out all of the, you know, so the traditional process, if we, if we walked through it, it'd be like, have a content brainstorm, figure out what it is that, what, what type of educational pieces do we want to make sure that our buyers are reading or engaging with? Then we, you know, resource that, we go through the process of making that content. Um, then we take that, we turn them into ads or some sort of paid channel promotion to get them in front of our prospects and decision makers. And we hope that some percentage of them are gonna engage with that. And then we hope that some percentage of them are going to raise their hand, you know, whether it's a request to them or whatever your golden motion is. And then, then the sales motion can begin. And again, like a lot of that takes a lot of time. So you can be six, eight you know, months out on, something, on a program like that. And it still very much has its place, but decision maker marketing says, what if we could just cut out all of that process and go straight to building a real relationship with your decision maker at the highest level, executive to executive, um, get to know what that person's priorities are for the year. It's, it's effectively like a qual call, but disguised and disguised is a bad word, but it really it's like you're, you're creating thought leadership with this person and you're building relationship in the process. And if there's alignment, they're going to acknowledge that they're going to find that out. Um, so for us, that looks like, you know, a podcast, right? Or some sort of content creation, what we're doing right now. So let's pretend that I was your buyer persona. You would take, you know, a list of target accounts. I was one of those reach out and say, you know, Hey Elias, um, I'm thinking about, I'm doing a podcast on go to market excellence, go to market leadership. would love to have you on. Of course, now I'm flattered, right? I'm like, Whoa, sweet. Yeah. That's something that I'm an expert on. I'd love, I thank you for thinking of me. I'd love yeah. to be on the show. And so bam, like just like that, you've now booked a meeting with me, one of your decision makers in this theoretical example. Um, we're about to spend, as we are right now, 45 minutes getting to know each other. And in this program, you're, you're able to weave in your qual questions, right? Like you might ask me something like, you know, Elias, what's top of mind for you this year? What's your biggest challenge? What's the thing that's keeping you up at night? I'm really curious, you know, where do you think the industry is going? You can ask me all of these questions that normally would be like pulling teeth with an SDR, you know, if it's right. in a sales context, but it, in this context, 
you know, we're having a, that's a brainstorm. You're asking me these really thoughtful questions. And now at the end of the call, we've built a relationship and you know what matters to me. And I'm probably curious about what's going on with you and what your company does. And so I almost qualify myself into whether there's an opportunity there. Um, so that's decision-maker marketing in a nutshell. And I think that's something that we're seeing a ton of traction with and is very kind of tip of the spear in the market right now. Companies oh, like that is Gong are, are blazing a trail on this with their you know, revenue intelligence show. And I think they're taking a very similar strategy. So they're great examples in the market of this working really well. So taking it even further, you're probably taking that content that is from this podcast or whatever it may be, spreading it out into case studies and other things too, going back to your, your paid you know, advertisement that you're using for even more signaling. Exactly. I mean, if you think about well, the way that I describe it to folks is like 75% of decision-maker marketing is building that relationship. That is the most important part. But 25% of it happens to be that you produce a ton of content, like video snippets, an actual podcast. You can turn those you know, highlights into blog posts. Um, so you don't even have to really think through what are we going to blog about? You can just hand it off to a talented writer and they get to pull quotes from this thought leader who's also a prospect of yours. Uh, additionally, you can even invite in, I think in some sense, this, it doesn't replace the need for case studies, but when you ask a client for a case study, it's an ask, right? You're using it, you're cashing it in. Whereas if you ask a client, Hey, we're having a show that you're an expert you know, on this topic and a thought leader, we'd love to have you on and share your thoughts about the future of the industry. You can weave in questions where they talk about, you know, how they've seen success using tools like yours or whatever it is. Um, and it, I think it's more powerful than a case study because they're freely sharing it. You're, it's not like the canned, you know, before, after, you know, business right. case, ROI, and you can still get around to that same stuff, but in a more organic and authentic way without burning that ask as well, which is cool. Yeah. So you talked a couple of times about the authentic, how that's really key. Why do you think that is? Like why are, or is the pendulum shifting to that? You know, I wish I had the answer. I think it's people want to enjoy the work that they do. And I think we're starting to see through just the ones and zeros of traditional, and it doesn't make it any fun to engage with that. And I think our bullshit detectors are on like ultimate high alert, right? Like anybody can put together a case study, but to hear someone really casually, truly casually talk about their challenges and, and talk about what they're thinking about. And then, you know, it happens to be part of your solution happens to be part of that story. You can relate, right? This is the sense of relatability. I think for the longest time, B2B lost its sense of relatability and it wasn't, it just wasn't good. And so now, I mean, I think Dave Gerhardt, um, when he was at Drift really started to pave the way for this kind of authentic open sharing, um, and, and a lot of folks have just taken that and run with it. And, and now it's as though the industry industry has been given permission to be more authentic. You know, someone broke the ice, people liked it. And, you know, it turns out we enjoy being human more than we enjoy being, you know, buttoned up, you know, tie up to the, exactly. What are you, what are you trying to say here? You don't have a tie on, man. You're good. <laughs> I, I still have buttons. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. Um, oh, that's so interesting. So I, I agree. You know, I, I think it is about people want to connect with people. Um, at the end of the day, I think that's something that a lot of us are, you know, are craving. I think especially in today's pandemic, you know, world when this has been like a second or third order, 
in, like wave impacts of being in, in a pandemic or from home orders. What do you think is going to happen, you know, moving forward? Man, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> um, but if you do have a crystal ball, what would yeah. you say? Hypothetically. Uh, yeah. I should just hold an eight ball here just to, just as a joke. People are like, well, you know, what should we do? I'm like, all right, well, let me consult the eight ball. <laughs> Ask again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the obvious stuff, right? Like in-person events, everybody's scrambling to figure out on the go-to-market side and the, and the growth side, you know, how do we reallocate those budgets to meaningfully engage with folks who are now at home? Uh, at the, and so there was this like huge pendulum swing, right? At first, everyone was scrambling to figure out how to do this. Like, how do we, how do we engage with this media in a way that we haven't before in a consistency and you know, production value that we haven't before. Um, great, we've got the budget, let's throw it into there. But then the pendulum swung and now everybody's like, I'm so sick of being on Zooms. I'm so sick of staring at my screen all day. And so I think that's the new challenge is how do you create unique experiences that don't feel like a drag? You know, that don't feel like, because pretty quickly now Zoom is getting to be this, the conference where you're like, man, I just wanna go home, my feet are tired. You know, it's like, instead of your feet being tired, it's your, your brain and eyes. <laughs> right, right. So, right yeah, I think that that is, that's the challenge right now is, is coming up with ways to make, there's a lot you can do with, you know, this medium. Uh, and I think the companies that are going to win are going to find ways to slice and dice it. So it feels fresh. You know, someone doesn't feel like it's just another Zoom. Right, right. So, you know, you mentioned that you work with five to 10 companies uh, every year fast growing. What are some things that uh, are not working when you go into these organizations and they're like, Hey, we're doing these things. What are some pattern matching that you see that doesn't work and you have to kind of correct the path? You know, what's interesting is a lot of the time it's fundamental stuff. Um, you know, you, I think when we started down this path, I was expecting a lot more of very specific, you know, strategic, and then there's plenty of that. But if I were to identify the biggest pattern here that we see is that companies rush to ship campaigns that aren't well matched to their buying committee and without truly understanding their buying committee. And sometimes that happens for later stage companies that happens when sales and marketing don't have a good partnership or haven't set up a cadence of communicating with one another, like a weekly cadence of communicating with one another about the conversations that sales, whether that's SDR or even in the opportunity stage, you know, they're having and learn like really hearing that feedback and then bringing that over to the marketing side and honing campaigns that either, you know, help grease the skids so that the deals don't get hung up. So the buyer's better educated or whether it, you know, even targeting, just really understanding that, that persona and honing in on the ICP. So I'd say if there's one thing that I get up on my soapbox all the time and rant about, it's that just like really take the time. It's, it's, if you're, if you're about to dump 50 grand, a hundred grand, you know, a million dollars in a channel per month that, you know, obviously our, our clients range from series A to post IPO. So we, we deal with all sorts of different budgets, but, um, Regardless, like that money is not going to be well spent. It's going to fall into a leaky bucket if you're if the fundamental, you know, piece, which is who are we talking to, what do they care about, and do we have something interesting to say to them that they that not that we think is interesting that they think is interesting. It's worth taking the extra time to really nail that down. 
and to test it before throwing a ton of budget behind it. So I'd say that's, that's my number one um, pattern that we see folks, you know, everybody thinks they can shortcut, right? Everybody gets a little bit excited and yeah. it almost always ends up taking them more time than if they had just invested it up front. Interesting. So how do you test then? How do you know that you got that messaging and that person correct? It's the, it's the sales conversations that validate that, right? When you have a sales team, it's like, wow, these people are primed, right? They, they are eager. The, the messaging, the script, everything that we're saying to them is hitting and they seem well-educated about what we're talking to them about already. They come in well-educated. Um, and then of course the sales cycles as those shorten up, that's usually a great sign that the, the matching there, both on, you know, at the top of the funnel, who are we bringing into the funnel? Who are we qualifying into the funnel? Um, how are we talking to them and educating them? And then how is sales doing in kind of continuing that sales motion all the way through? Um, so I, I think the best teams today are thinking about revenue ops, not sales and marketing, right? Um, it, it's, it's a team effort. You know, you have top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel. And whether you're in sales and marketing, like that funnel, everybody should be, that's the thing, right? Um, yeah. And so I think the teams that are better aligned on that front are the ones that are able to sprint faster. They're communicating better. The feedback loop is stronger. And that's, that's essential nowadays. So you mentioned bottom of funnel and we've been talking a lot of you know, marketing and sales, yeah. how does, how does the bottom funnel play into, uh, you know, things that you're seeing with these type of companies? In what sense are you curious about the bottom of funnel? Yeah. Yeah. So how are you, how are you thinking about bottom of a funnel and the feedback loop? Um, yep. you know, once they become a customer, how does that feedback play into your different growth strategies or go to market strategies? Yeah. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and one of the things we, we immediately set up if it doesn't exist is there should be a weekly meeting between marketing and the SDR team, right? So that's higher up in the funnel. There should be a, doesn't have to be weekly necessarily, but at least monthly, there should be an Opti review uh, with the account execs to understand between marketing and account execs to understand what's going on in the opportunities, where are they getting hung up? What's the feedback? And then likewise, you know, maybe, maybe it isn't monthly, but at least at a bare minimum, it should be monthly, but at a bare minimum, it could be quarterly with the success team understanding, you know, wh what are those stories of success? Where is there still friction and how can marketing support, you know, the places where there are friction and champion the places and the customers where there's success. Um, so that's, that's critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so to me, it sounds like you, you're, you're not only just talking about like what you can do for marketing from the buyer perspective, but you're also thinking from the sales through just, you know, simple conversations is what you're seeing is, you know, tactics that people can implement today to make their go-to-market plans more attainable. Oh yeah. I mean, play as a team, win as a team, you know, like yeah. it's, it's funny how, um, early teams will silo themselves mm -hmm. and it's just like such an easy adjustment. If you can take a step back and go, okay, let's just think about this as we're one, we're, we're a funnel team or a revenue team. And yep. we need to communicate at certain junctures um, on a certain cadence so that everyone, everybody can be in lockstep. So yeah, it's, it's super key. I, I, it's, we didn't expect to spend so much time on organizational coaching and on, you know, these, these bits, but they, 
are the fundamentals that everything else follows from. So those have to be set up right in the beginning. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, and you mentioned earlier about RevOps as, yeah. as an essential piece. Can you expand on that? Or why, why do you, like, why did you bring that up? Like, why do you think that's like an essential piece? Because if, if so, when I think of revenue operations, I'm thinking of like the, the, the merger of sales and marketing, right? If, if we take away those titles, like it is revenue operations is the plan, the strategy, the goals, uh, the measures, and the two teams that play into the various pieces of the funnel. Right. And so I think that like, I use that term to sum up all of those pieces because if any one of those gets out of whack, right? Like even if, you know, when the C CFO is setting benchmarks with the board and the CEO and others, you know, like if, if not everyone is present at the table and bought in on those goals, that's again, you end up with these like fissures between groups and people not pushing in the same direction. Um, and then, then you sometimes end up with like arbitrary goal setting, which, which is the worst. Like, I, I think we're getting away from that, but you know, if you comp a marketing team on an MQL goal, which is totally the wrong thing to be measuring, right? Who cares how many MQLs there are if marketing is contributing to opportunity creation and revenue creation, right? And a lot of the times, I mean, we'll see companies, clients of ours that'll make a bet about their MQLs, you know, how many MQLs they need. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like our goal should be to support however many opportunities we need to create based on what we know our average close one rate is um, to support whatever revenue we know we need. And in that way, we're also aligning ourselves with the sales team because if they're not getting opportunities and they're not closing those opportunities, they're losing. So why would marketing not lose in that case? Well, we hit our MQL goal. Like, fuck that. That doesn't matter. Because you know, the people who actually matter are the ones closing the deals and that, that supports the company. And so if they're not happy, we're not, we shouldn't be happy. So I think that that's almost becoming old news, which is great. Like I think modern marketing teams are thinking in this way and, and they're partnering with sales and they're setting the goals in, in the same room together. Um, but that certainly is something that if, if teams aren't thinking about it that way yet, they should, they should definitely think about it that way. Interesting. So if you were to give somebody advice that they are thinking about more of the MQL at sales qualified, you know, opportunity created, you know, your traditional pathway, how do you start having that conversation? How do you get to a point where it's lining up to be that opportunity creation? How would you, where would you advise people to start? Simplify, just, you know, like get, get the two leaders in the room or the three leaders in the room and say, what are we actually, like, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? What, what shuts this company down? What, how do we fail and how do we win? And it's probably one number or two numbers, maybe, you know, like what is our churn and thereby engagement, all these things, customer success, customer happiness, and what is our revenue? Right. And of course there are other, I'm, I'm speaking purely on the, you know, the revenue side of the house. Right. But, um, when you boil it down to just what matters, then things become a lot more clear. So then it's like, okay, like marketing team, what, like say, they can say to sales, like how many, what are we, what's our win rate? Right. Okay. So based on that, now we know how many opportunities we need to create. Great. We're going to, we're your partner to make sure that those are created. And, and then you're our partner to give us feedback. If, we're doing a good job of creating opportunities, 
but that they're for whatever reason not closing well, or they could close, they, they could be a better alignment and they could close more quickly, right? You, you partner with us to let us know about that. We'll partner to make sure that you're getting those at bats in a meaningful way. And our only, our, our goal is close one revenue and making sure that those are customers that are retained. So, right. so those, so those are your, those are your two guiding star or your North stars for everything. For sure. Yep. Awesome. So one thing I've been noticing a lot about is you talk about frameworks and how to think about things from marketing, from revenue to operations, to sales. I mean, where did all these different ideas and frameworks come from? Like, how, like how do they develop and you know, where do they come? Like, yeah, where did they start? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, you make a lot of painful mistakes along the way, right? Like I can call out a time when I had an awful partnership with a sales leader. And I think both of us fucked it up in fantastic ways. I mean, we were just like doing all the wrong things together in our partnership and it made it so contentious and so not optimized for company success as a result of the way that we chose to partner and the way that we were thinking about our goals. Um, and so that was really the genesis for me of um, the first big slap in the face, you know, with, with this kind of more you know, organizational and goal setting um, Certainly we've been through many more examples where we see this being done pattern match and say, okay, let's, let's call this out early. Let's fix it. Let's help them get on the right path. But for me personally, there, there, there was one in particular where um, we both weren't doing it right. I made a ton of mistakes and I certainly, I think he did as well. And I'm sure now in retrospect, we would see that and we would probably laugh about it and go, wow, you know, we could have done so much better together. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes you have to learn the hard way. No, absolutely. Some of my, some of my best business learnings have been the hard way for sure. Uh, what's another one that comes to mind? Oh man. Uh, they're so broad. I, I think there's a lot about when I, usually when I go through these, I, I jump back to the founder stuff, right. And like the, you know, not necessarily with matter made today, but I've, I've had a number of other companies, um, two of them that were acquired. And so, um, I mean, everything from founder mistakes, you know, like picking, how do you pick the right people to work with? How do you evaluate those folks? And, you know, I've been through many founder breakups and, and replacement of executives and all these things that, you know, until you're in the hot seat trying to figure out like, do I need to part ways with this person? Do I need to bring someone else in? Do I like, you can't learn how to handle that until you have to learn how to handle it almost. Like, I don't right. think there's any class theory or, um, you know, Harvard business school papers that I could have read that would have prepared me to actually handle those situations. Um, you know, what happens when you sell a company and then end up in court over like payment disagreements, right? Like uh, uh, for the payout, like there, there's shit you don't think about. You're like, Oh, great. Yeah. You know, like, we're good. Awesome. And then, you know, like things come up and you have to deal with them and you have to learn on the fly. Um, and thankfully, you know, I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by some really talented and helpful mentors and whether formal or informal along the way. And I think those are the moments where you really lean on people like that who've been through it before and can, can advise, um, and you come out the other end, then being able to do that yourself a bit better. Uh, absolutely.
Um, well, definitely want to get back to those uh, opportunities to talk about your mentors here in a little bit. Um, I would be curious to dive into how do you think about recruitment? I mean, I, any type of go-to-market plans for any level, for a founder to an operator, um, you have to make good hirings. And obviously that sounds like it was a, a key learning for you. How do you think about it now? It depends on at what level, but typically the first thing, so, okay, for the longest time, I kind of chuckled when people were like, culture, 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 culture. I was like, all right, sure. But like rubber meets the road, people need to be talented and have the experience. But I've made enough bad hires through my career thus far to have realized now that cult, like culture and team fit really is the most important thing. Because I think that if you get someone who is a bright mind, who thinks on their feet, but culturally is aligned. And by culture, I, I mean a lot of different things. Like at MatterMade, um, one of the things that's most important is that people take extreme ownership, right? So if something goes wrong, it's that person's responsibility to fix it. It's my responsibility. To fix it. Everyone assumed like, I've got, I must do something because we don't accept that, you know, stuff to go wrong like that. So everybody jumps in, everybody picks up an oar, everybody's paddling together. And, but that mindset is sometimes hard to find. There, there are certain people that just enjoy being in their swim lane, doing their thing, and not thinking about things in, that, in such a proactive way. Um, I think culture then also spans into you know, like how, do, how do individuals feel about corporate responsibility and our necessary involvement in community projects and community impact. And so nowadays where I'm seeing the most success is finding people who line up with those principles just naturally, not because they want the job, but because this is already, this is, they're actively seeking for a company like this. And, and I've found that most of these people also happen to be highly skilled and also happen to have very interesting backgrounds. Um, so that, that's kind of, uh, where I think about how I think about recruiting today is, is looking for those kind of diamonds in the rough that are really aligned on that front. And then of course, going through, you know, skill vetting and, you know, giving them practical experience to see how they handle situations and, and all that. Oh, that's good. I really like that. Especially when like you can give them like that, you find the diamond in the rough, but you still verify, Hey, you can do the job. And now, okay, great. Like culturally you fit with the principles cause you were seeking us out or, uh, for whatever reason. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so kind of shifting in, you know, you've obviously two companies, uh, you're, you're doing five to 10 large scale, uh, growth, uh, advising for all these different companies. Like, how do you do it? Like, what's like things that you do for yourself? Uh, like what processes or habits have you formed to kind of help you, um, in your day to day? Good question. Um, I do my best to keep my mind clear. That sounds stupid uh, as it's coming out of my mouth. But by that, I mean, <laughs> I try not to overwork myself because I find okay. that if I let my days drag out and I'm not regimented about how I use my time during the day and I start logging too many hours, I just fall into this rut of like pure execution. And that's not what, you know, I wouldn't, that's not the top priority when people come to us that of course execution is extremely important, right. but it's like table stakes almost it's, it's, it's the thoughtfulness behind the execution. And some, like, as we talked about earlier, sometimes you have to simplify things down and have the, you need to have the headspace to simplify things down in the first place. And so 
for me, I, I've in the last couple of years, I've become much more regimented about like, when does my day start and end? How much time do I give myself between meetings to like process and clear out and then start fresh for the next, next person? Um, so I'd say that's, that's a really core thing that has helped me and helped our clients see more success. Um, because I certainly, you know, we've all been there grinding it out and your, your brain just like is steam coming out the ears and you're just trying to stay above water and that's not helpful for anyone. Um, so I'd say as far as personal tool set, that's, that's at the top for me. Yeah. Now, are you doing this like the day before the, the morning of the week before, how do you kind of plan out your, your day to day? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I work with, uh, an assistant who helps keep my calendar straight and she's amazing. And, um, we have a chief of staff that make sure that all of our, everyone's set up for success in the meetings that they're having and, and that, um, you know, we're all enabled in the way that we need to be, even though it's kind of funny, like we're a tiny team in the scheme of things, right? We're like between 10 and 15 people, depending on how you look at it. And, um, we don't, on paper, we definitely don't need a chief of staff, but this person enables all of us to do our best work um, and to have the most clear minds. And so I, I would say that that for me, like when I'm chatting with folks who are trying to be extremely high performance and um, optimize the most out of their time, the advice that I give them over beers, rather than saying like, man, you could like cram more into your calendar is to say, hey, what can you take out of there? Like, how can you cram less into your calendar? And right. I always recommend finding someone to work with, even you know, even if you don't think that, like, oh, I totally have it under control, or I, I can manage it. Like, my output is the equivalent of three of me because of the person that I work with, um, and and she certainly enables me to be a much better version of myself, you know, work context and a personal context, um, while keeping my mind clear. So. It's, it's, uh, I, I kind of was slow on the uptake of going down that path, but I'm really happy that I, I was convinced to, to do so. Fantastic. And there's actually, uh, I'll, I'll send a, rec a recommendation out for everyone listening. Um, there's a company called Mind Maven that was okay. started, it's a, it's a consulting group, um, started by a gentleman who was in charge of, I'm going to space the division that he was in charge of it at LinkedIn early on, early on LinkedIn. I think he was, he was in charge of, the network effects of the product or something like that, but really thoughtful about how uh, networking works and how people build trust in one another. And, and he now has a consultancy that helps folks, um, helps leaders build more meaningful, meaningful relationships while using effectively less of their time leveraging uh, an EA. And um, it's called, yeah, Mind Maven. Check it out. It's really, really powerful stuff. We worked with... Um, Connor is the name of the guy that we worked with there. Um, and I, I would spend that money 15 times over to, to get the results that I have. Awesome. Well, we'll add that in the show notes, um, Perfect. to make sure that everyone gets it. So, uh, that's really great recommendation and on recommendations, any, like any, like other tools, resources, um, that you found to be really helpful in, in your day-to-day -day execution. Tools and resources. Um, I'm a big fan of Grain and Descript. Um, they do similar things, but Grain is a newer company um, that plugs into your Zoom and allows you to create like highlight snippets from conversations uh, based on cool. text. So it's, it's really powerful if you're trying to produce content 
from your Zoom meetings. Um, highly recommend checking that out. They have a great integration. Um, let's see, Descript is very similar, but it doesn't integrate with Zoom. So if you're having a lot of meetings or not meetings, uh, if you have video content that isn't coming from Zoom, that's being recorded elsewhere and you need to upload it into a tool to edit it quickly and create highlights, uh, it's a great tool for that. Um, and there's so many tools. I'm just trying to focus, uh, focus my mind on something that would be helpful. I mean, one of the things that we really like doing is as quickly as possible, having a, a cockpit of dashboards for, you know, both at the executive and board level all the way through, like what is, what is, you know, the CEO care about seeing and reporting to the board? What does the CMO care about having at their fingertips? Like what, it, um, you know, what does she care about seeing uh, at a glance? And then what does the team underneath that person care about um, being able to deep dive into with like campaign level reporting and boards? And so um, Databox is a tool that we use for that that I think is really fantastic um, cool. and worth checking out. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll add down below in the show notes, uh, wherever this will be. Uh, so you, you've been a founder, uh, now helping companies with their marketing somebody who is either thinking, Hey, I want to go become a founder or uh, I want to get into marketing or I'm just starting out. What advice would you give them? Uh, start, <laughs> uh, start reaching out to people. I, that was, that was the Genesis for me. I, I come from a very non-traditional business background. Like I, you know, I went to art school. I dropped out of art school. I founded my first company after waiting tables. Um, so I didn't have any, like if, if that first company hadn't succeeded, I wouldn't have had any criteria by which anyone would have hired me for anything, right? Like I just didn't, I wasn't qualified in a traditional sense. And I knew that I had to prove myself through that. And so what I did was reach out to just a bunch of people who had been successful in the arena that I cared about and was interested in and was totally honest with them. I was like, hey, you know, you've been wildly successful. I have everything to learn. Um, I, I'm, you know, really eager just to hear your story and to learn from you. And, you know, I have nothing to offer in return except, you know, open ears and, and hopefully someday we'll be able to have beers and talk about how your advice was impactful for me. And I think that spans both if you want to found a company or even if you're at the beginning of your career in growth or marketing and you want to accelerate your ladder up in learning and, you know, growing and titles and all that responsibility. I think same thing, like surround yourself with people who have done more and better and continue to push yourself to do that. Um, the, the only moments in my career where I've felt stagnant are the times when I stopped reaching out to people and, and stopped pushing myself to think about what is above and, and what are they doing? That's really great advice. Uh, last question. Uh, what is something that you want people to take away from this conversation or that you want to leave with them doesn't have to relate to the conversation. Just, hey, this is something that I want to leave with you and uh, end our time together. Yeah, I, th I think about how you par partner with people, whether those people are you know, internal and teammates um, at an individual level, like just another person on your team. How, how, like think about how you're partnering with that person. Are you um, doing something that is going to help them be a better version of themselves or that enables them to be the best version of themselves? Um, there's a quote about you know, find some, find one thing to do. What one thing can I do today to increase the energy of my team? And I think that that applies to both leaders and, 
ICs, right? Everyone has the opportunity to do that. And teams that have the most fun and are the most effective, I think, push themselves and one another to think about how they're enabling each other. So that's one thing. Another thing that I, I wish was talked about more and that more action was taken was asking ourselves as individuals, again, whether we're an IC or a leader or a founder or a VC, um, I think we have tremendous influence in the world today. Um, and I think we need to do more with that influence in our communities um, and not just talking about it, not just supporting it with our words. I think Mark Benioff is such, such a great example of this where, you know, there was the, um, law that was up, I'm going to totally butcher the specifics, but I think it was like North Carolina and the bathroom, gendering the bathrooms. And he was like, you know what, we're done doing business. If you guys aren't going to be supportive of everyone in this world, like we just are going to pull out of North Carolina as a whole. Right. And I think he's done this a couple of times now. And, and I really think that, you know, yeah, it's Salesforce and yeah, they could probably afford to not be in North Carolina or whatever state it was. I, I apologize, North Carolina, if it wasn't you, but I think it was. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think we have a lot more power than we, than we realize. Um, and we have a lot more skills than we realize. And so finding ways as individuals and teams to lend those skills to our communities and to causes that are going to impact us and they're going to impact our children. Um, I think we all need to think about that more often and Love talk it. about it more often. No, absolutely agree. I, I think that's, uh, that's really good. Uh, Elias, uh, if people are interested in, uh, you know, reaching out to you or want to get uh, to learn more, where should people go? Yeah. I mean, mattermade.co to learn more about Mattermade and then connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm always happy to have conversations with smart folks who are doing interesting things out there um, or folks who are at the beginning of their career and trying to figure out what they're doing regardless. Um, Elias Rubel on LinkedIn. All right, perfect. I will add those to the show notes as well. And uh, Elias, again, thank you so much. Uh, it was great chatting with you today. Walter, always a pleasure, man.